Um, my name is Brent Stanfield. I'm, I've been a longtime member here, a pastor here, and an elder at this church, and it's uh, great to be able to fill in for Casey here this morning as we continue in our series in the book of Mark. And we've been in this series for about two years now, and uh, we're getting just now to really the, the uh, climax of the book, the really the most important part of the book. In fact, today we reach a turning point in the story as Jesus begins His passion. Uh, his arrest is what we're going to be talking about today as He is arrested and uh, His trial and death and uh, burial and resurrection are quick to come. But before we start into Mark chapter 14, I want to kind of make a little bit of a public service announcement. Uh, you see, most of you here today actually suffer from a rather serious condition. And I don't know if you know it, but you suffer from what's called glossophobia. How many of you have ever heard the term glossophobia? Well, if you haven't heard of it, you're probably not alone, but it probably affects about three out of every four people here. So most of you here have that condition, and here's what it is. It is the fear of public speaking. And uh, glossophobia is actually a very serious anxiety that can arise when you are faced with the possibility that you might have to speak in front of a large crowd. And surveys show that about three-fourths of all people suffer from glossophobia. So when they are called upon to speak in front of a group or in the public, they, they suffer from severe anxiety over that possibility. You know, it's interesting that uh, some people, some surveys have even indicated that in a segment of this group that has glossophobia, that the fear of public speaking is actually more intense than their fear of death. And uh, th this is a, a condition that doesn't just affect, you know, all of us, even movie stars and people who are accustomed to performing on stage suffer from glossophobia. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting things when you look into this is, is that uh, people who are on stage a lot can still suffer from this, but when they're playing another character, it actually goes away. When they're not having to play themselves, they don't suffer from it. But the moment they have to be themselves in front of a crowd, all of a sudden, this intense anxiety and fear arises up within them. And we can ask ourselves, why do you think this is? Why do you think we suffer from something like this, this anxiety over speaking in public? And I think at least part of the answer is this. There is an intense awareness of our own inadequacy. There's an intense awareness of our own inadequacy, and there's an insecurity that comes from that. We might begin to think about things like, they're not going to want to hear what I have to say. Maybe I don't have anything interesting to say. Maybe they're not going to think I'm interesting. Maybe my lack of knowledge in a certain area is going to be exposed. Maybe I'm going to be exposed in some way. And so we would prefer to keep our mouths shut. You know, there's that old saying, actually, that sometimes it's better to keep your mouth shut and let people assume you're an idiot than to open your mouth and remove all doubt, you know. I think we can all identify periods in our lives when we wish we had kept our mouths shut. I can certainly think of a few. As a matter of fact, back in law school, I remember one incident in particular where I was in a specific class. It was an employment discrimination class, and the topic wasn't very interesting to me, so I kind of dazed off and was, was daydreaming. But I had the kind of personality where I loved to answer questions in class. And in my daydream, I imagined that the professor had asked a question, and my hand shot up. 
And the professor looked at me and he said, Mr. Stanfield, do you have something you'd like to say? And I had something I'd like to say. So I started to answer the question that I thought he had asked. And I went on for a few minutes and thought I had made a great response and kind of rested my case, as all good lawyers do. And I remember immediately after I stopped, the professor didn't say anything. But I was a little uncomfortable because he had a pretty big grin on his face, like he was trying to conceal a laugh. And I started to get a little bit uh, uncomfortable, and I saw him put his head down and just kind of look at his notes and rub the top of his head. And I started to scan the room, and pretty much the entire class was looking at me with this look of, what are you talking about? And I started to get really hot under the collar and started to sink down into my seat. And to my horror, the teacher, without saying anything to me, just continued his lecture. And we were on a completely different part of the book than I was, I was even, it was just a completely different topic. And I wanted the ground to suck me down and disappear for the rest of for the rest of the semester. As a matter of fact, after that experience, I didn't answer a question in that class for the rest of the year. And the most intense thing that I felt at that moment was shame. Shame that I had made a fool of myself, that I had been exposed. And so as we continue in the Gospel of Mark today, I want you to think about this question. What do you do with your shame? What do you do with your shame? We all have shame. We all have things we are ashamed of. So what do we do with it? My my biggest fear is that you don't think you have any shame because it is an issue that we all deal with. And if you don't think you have any, then you probably have a bigger issue. But what do we do with our shame? In Mark chapter 14, as we have been going through this chapter of the book, we have just seen Jesus institute the Lord's Supper in the upper room with His disciples. And during that event, He he announced that Judas would betray Him. Judas leaves and He goes off to to, uh, uh, begin His betrayal. After the the Lord's Supper, the uh, disciples are gathered and Jesus predicts that all of them are about to fall away from Him that they're about to abandon him. And Peter denies this. He says, no, not me. I'll, I'll never leave you, Lord. And Jesus predicts that he's going to deny him three times before that night is even done. And then in the next section, we uh, learned last week that as Pastor Casey taught about Jesus' struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was sweating blood, knowing that there was this impending event that was about to take place. And he's struggling there as his disciples are asleep. And what's interesting about that account is that exactly 10 chapters previously, there was another account where the roles were reversed. This time it was the disciples who were panicked in a boat on the Sea of Galilee as a storm swirled around them. They're panicked and it's Jesus who's asleep at the bottom of the boat. And when they wake Jesus up, he quiets the storm with a word. And the wind stops and the sea becomes glass. And here we see the roles reversed. It's Jesus who is sweating blood, who is under this immense strain because there's a storm brewing. And it's a storm even He can't stop or He won't stop. And here it's the disciples who are asleep. If there was ever a moment to panic, this was it. 
But here it's Jesus who is awake, knowing what is about to come, and it's His disciples sleeping. And we pick up there in verse 42 of chapter 14, where we read this. Jesus says to His disciples, "'Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand.'" And immediately, while He was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd and a, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And we get this really peculiar story here at the end in verses 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Kind of seems like it's out of place here in the gospel. But I think it's one of the most significant facts about this whole story. You see, this night is a night of shame. Already Jesus' disciples are beginning to fail him. They're sleeping while he's in agony, awaiting his passion. And then in the middle of the night, one of his other disciples, the one who is betraying him, comes to him and betrays him with an act of intimacy, with a kiss, and by calling him rabbi, teacher. And just Judas has brought with him guards from the priests, the scribes, and the elders who are too scared to come themselves. So they send out their minions with swords and clubs to capture Christ. And when they get here, Jesus calls them out and He says, what are you here to, to, to capture me in the middle of the night with clubs and swords? Every day I was in the temple surrounded by crowds. Why didn't you get me then? Knowing that they feared those crowds and they feared Him because of how He had made a fool of them on so many occasions. And so in their shame and their cowardice, they come in the middle of the night. But then in another moment of shame, His disciples, after He's captured, flee from Him. They run. And it's in that context that we get this final story, the story of a young man who's following after all the disciples have fled. He was following, he's wrapped only in a linen cloak. And as the guards see him, they try to capture him as well. And then he runs away naked. I think to understand what's going on here, we kind of have to go back and look at how nakedness plays a role in biblical history. See, nakedness actually plays a biblical role, in our, a big role in biblical history. If you go all the way back to the beginning, you remember that in Genesis 2, God has placed Adam in a garden, 
And in the midst of that garden, he places a tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God looks down at Adam and he says, you know, something here is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. So we read this in verse 21 of chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we see this picture just after the creation of man and woman where they're naked and not ashamed. You know, this idea of nakedness in the Bible is this idea primarily that they have nothing. In the book of Job, in chapter 1, verses 21, after Job has lost everything, if you know that story, Job loses everything. He loses his family, he loses his wealth, he even loses his health, and he makes this statement in Job chapter 1, verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. See, what Job is saying is, I came with nothing, and I'll leave with nothing. God gives me everything, and He takes it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And here we see in the second chapter of Genesis that the man and the woman were naked, and they weren't ashamed. You've heard the phrase, He doesn't, you know, He'd give you the shirt off His back. These two young kids don't even have the shirts on their back, they're naked but they're unashamed. They have only what God gives to them, and they're fine with that. And then in verse chapter 3, verse 1, things take an ominous turn. Something new is introduced to the story, and it's the serpent. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we read this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The craftiness of the serpent is this ominous development that happens in the midst of the story. See, the crafty serpent tells nothing but lies or truths that are twisted into lies. And we read this in in verse uh, 2, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, of course, that's not what God said. He said, you should only, can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you see the way he's already started to twist God's Word. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You know, it's interesting as you read that portion of the text, God never said anything about touching it. And so it's interesting that Eve maybe is just unfamiliar 
with what God's command actually is, like many of us from time to time. And the serpent continues, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So it's interesting here, there is a lie presented by Satan, and he says, you're not going to die if you eat this. It's a clear lie. He says, but you're going to become like God knowing good and evil. And Eve believes that. Here's what she does. She eats the fruit, and the immediate consequence of her choice and of Adam's choice is that they now know they're naked. You see, they did learn evil that day. They did come to a knowledge of evil that day, and here is what they came to. Here's the knowledge that they came to. They were evil. They were evil. The thing that they knew at that moment is this. We are nothing like God. Their eyes were opened and they began to see we have nothing. We're naked. Satan's lie, you will be like God. The only sense in which that came true is that they, like God, knew that they were not God. So what's the result? It's shame. It's fear. It's hiding. They cover up. Just a few verses later, they run and they hide when God appears. And then they experience the cursing of the world, and they're expelled from Eden. And ladies and gentlemen, almost all of human history from that point forward is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, we experience evil in this world. We come to know evil in this world through our experience of the world around us. We see evil in the disease that's all around us, the hunger, the famine, and broken relationships, and the loneliness that we feel. We see it through murder and the wars that ravage the world, through sexual abuse. We see it everywhere in the world around us, but where we see it most clearly and most intimately is in ourselves. We begin to experience our own sin, our own angers, our own contempt for others, our own pride, our own laziness, our own greed, our own lusts, and perhaps nowhere do we see it more than in our own impending death, as it becomes clearer and clearer throughout our lives that we can't even save ourselves. So let me ask you this again. What do we do with our shame? 
You know, it's interesting to me that one of the aspects of our culture is our fascination with superhero movies, people who can't die. We flock to the movies to watch about these heroes who cannot be killed. We long to be them, but we are not them. We are not them. So what do we do with our shame? Well, let me start here. The first thing that I want to say this morning on that is I know my own shame. I'm not up here talking about just your shame. I know my own shame. As I grow older and I kind of compare my life to the standard that is Jesus Christ, I can see just how far I fall short of that standard. I know my own story, and so do many of you. And there is a lot in that story to be ashamed about. But I also know many of you, and I know your own stories. I know of the lusts and the adulteries and the materialism and the envy and the addictions and even the deaths that are part of our stories. And for those of you who I don't know, I can imagine there's something similar there. And my greatest fear for any of you is that you've suppressed that shame. You see, that is the alternative. That's what many people do is we suppress our shame. We avoid it. We deny it until one day maybe it bubbles up to the surface. And so let me ask you a third time, what do we do with our shame? With that question in mind, I want to go back to the Gospel of Mark, and I want to look again at this young boy, this young man who follows Jesus. In verse 50, all the disciples have fled, and there's this young man who has followed on for a little while with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And when they try to seize him, he runs away naked. You see, there are several competing theories about who this young man is. But I think far and away, the best understanding of who this young man is, is John Mark himself, the author of this gospel. See, tradition had it that uh, John Mark, who was Peter's personal secretary, his personal scribe, was a young man during Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, the tradition is that the Last Supper was in the upper room of his family home. And you can imagine this young man, after Jesus and his disciples leave, goes off to bed. And when he is suddenly awoken by something, probably the crowd that is going to arrest Jesus, he throws on a linen cloak around his waist, and he goes off to investigate. And when he gets there, he witnesses the events of Jesus' arrest. He sees it take place. And he sees all the other disciples run from Jesus, and then he follows for a little while to see what might happen to Jesus until he's discovered. And then when the guards try to arrest him, He discloses this personal story that nobody else saw. It's not recorded in any of the Gospels of himself 
running away from his Lord naked. This story is autobiographical. It's Mark. And here's what he's saying. I ran too. I abandoned Jesus in his moment of need. I ran away naked and afraid in my shame. So here's the question. What did Mark do with his shame? Well, I'll tell you what he did with his shame. For the next two and a half chapters in this book, he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. He recounts all the events about how Jesus has taken his shame. You see, everything from this point forward after Jesus' arrest is all about the shame that is heaped upon Jesus in this moment. And so Mark recounts all of that. He accounts, recounts Jesus' arrest, how he's falsely accused in the council, the bipartisan condemnation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if any of you watched the State of the Union this week, but isn't it interesting how difficult it is to get bipartisan agreement on anything? You know, it doesn't matter who's president, there's always those, those times when one side of the aisle stands and gives their applause and the other side is sitting down in disagreement. Well, here as Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin, He is condemned universally by everyone. And then as He's undergoing this circus, He looks outside into the courtyard and there He sees His best friend in all the world. Peter, denying him for the third time. And then he sent to Pontius Pilate. Pontius has him beaten, his back torn with a whip. He presents Jesus to the crowd, hoping that their bloodlust has been satiated by the whipping. And the crowd continues to scream and call for his execution. Pilate offers them a murderer in his play, offers him them the choice of having Jesus or a murderer, Barabbas. And the crowd picks the murderer over Jesus. After Pilate condemns him to death, the, sol- the soldiers spit upon him. He's mocked, and a crown of thorns is placed upon his head. He's struck with a fist and with a rod. Then he's made to carry the instrument of his own execution, the hill where he will die. And when he reaches that spot, he's stripped naked in front of everyone, nailed to a cross, and then he's lifted up on that cross in front of everyone who loves him and those who hate him and continue to mock him. And he's placed there next to two criminals who are certainly guilty of their crimes. And there he stands, or there he is set up, exposed in front of everyone. And over the course of several hours, he dies a gruesome death, suffocating and humiliated in every way. And after Jesus is shamed, exposed, humiliated, and brought to nothing, 
that he's put in a tomb, and a heavy stone is rolled over the face of that tomb. But the story doesn't end there, because the final words recorded in the Gospel of Mark are about the resurrection of Jesus. The final word comes in the resurrection. You see, He bore our shame in His death, but death could not hold Him. And this is how Mark deals with his own shame. Mark deals with his own shame, his own insufficiency, by proclaiming the sufficiency and victory of Christ, by proclaiming the gospel. You see, those who understand their own shame and who understand the work of Christ, they cannot contain it. They must proclaim it. So what do we do with our own shame? Well, if you don't know Christ, then what you probably do is you deny it, you hide it, you ignore it, you medicate it, maybe you numb it with entertainment, with the pursuit of pleasure. And perhaps you'll do all these things with your shame until you're standing before the judgment seat of God one day. And then it'll be impossible to avoid it. Or, if you know Christ, and because of Christ and Christ alone and His work, here's the answer. Because of Christ, we are free to admit and confess our shame and to proclaim the gospel. You know, one of the reasons why I go to this church is because of my good friend, Pastor Casey. Whenever I talk with anybody about Casey and his preaching, one of the things that always comes across is how authentic he is. He's very authentic. And I've always loved that about Casey. And one of the reasons why I trust him as a friend and as a pastor is because I know where his love for the gospel comes from, where his passion for the gospel comes from. Casey doesn't keep any secrets about his story, the story of a young 18-year-old boy who was in a car accident that caused the death of his friend, and it was his fault. And after that, he was presented the gospel, and it changed his life when he learned about what Christ had done for him. And so I know where Casey's passion for the gospel comes from. It comes from an acute awareness of his own shame and what Christ has done for him. And that's the story. The, the gospel is best proclaimed by people who know their shame. That's true throughout church history. I think of great men like St. Augustine who writes in his confessions about his very real awareness of his own fallenness, of his own brokenness. And how he came to appreciate the gospel as a result of that and love it. Or of Martin Luther, who in his younger years would spend hours tormented in confession, talking to the confessor about his sins, tormented by them. And when he heard the gospel finally, he grew to love it because of what 
Christ had done to take away his sins and his shame. But I don't think it's any surprise why the Apostle Paul is the greatest proclaimer of the gospel in human history. The man who was a one-time murderer of Christians, who would take them and commit them to prison, persecute them, and who were there consenting at their death. I don't think there's any surprise why he becomes the greatest proclaimer of the gospel the world has ever seen. It's because he knew his own shame, and he knew what Christ had done to cover that shame. And that's why he can say in Romans chapter 1, verses 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. You see, we can understand our shame, and because we understand our shame, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation. So what do we do with our shame? We proclaim the gospel with it. We use it as the springboard to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me close with a few, with a few final points. Let me tie up a few loose ends here. The first is this. Praise be to God that it wasn't the tree of the knowledge of evil in the Garden of Eden. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, we experience evil in this world through the experience of the world and through ourselves. But we experience and come to know good in this world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And because of that, because we know the good, we know that Christ has made us into His bride. He's made us into His bride, the church. And right now in this world, the church in some sense is clothed with our buildings, with our student ministries, with our worship bands, with the lights we have around the stage. And some, some of those clothes and some of that finery that we adorn ourselves with is better than others. You can go to some churches that are so beautifully adorned and look wonderful. Here we are a little bit more modest, although we do a good job with what we have. But there will come a day when all these will be gone, when everything here will disappear, and the only thing will be the body of Christ, His bride, standing before her King. And on that day, the King will say, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. This church was brought out of me. And there's the incredible irony of Satan's lie. You see, what Satan intended in his lie when he told Eve, you'll become like God, he intended that to be for our destruction. He intended it for evil, to destroy God's creation. But here we see how God has this power of turning evil into our good. Because through the work of Christ, we are being conformed daily 
into the image of His Son. Through the work of Christ, we are being made one with the Father. We are adopted into the family of God. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ Himself. And we are being made more and more into the image bearers of God in this world. Finally, let me close up this one last loose end. Perhaps you do suffer from glossophobia, the fear of public speaking. And perhaps it is because of your your fear of your own insufficiency. Let me encourage you here this morning. I pray that God will deliver you from that. That your knowledge of all that Christ has done for you, how He has removed your shame, will give you the courage to declare the glory of His gospel, the glory of Christ. I pray that for all of you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for Your glory, for Your mercy on us. Lord, as we consider our shame, that we bring nothing to You, but that everything we have comes from Your good and sovereign hand. Lord, I pray that we will admit and confess our own shame, but proclaim the glory of the gospel where Christ took our shame. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we profess that, as we proclaim that, that we will be changed to be more like You, to reflect Your glory every single day, to be Your bride so that we can become one with You. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.